0: You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a senior editorial manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. (music) Threats and vulnerabilities. In cyber, the arguable fourth dimension, threats are everywhere. The landscape is treacherous and a petri dish for malfeasance. And the landscape itself is cordoned off by boundaries that we know are riddled with vulnerabilities, but there are basic steps we can all take to avoid falling into the pitfalls presented by tried and true and still very successful threats. But when it comes to the unknown, emerging threats, in many cases, novel techniques or attacks that exploit hidden vulnerabilities, how do we stand a chance? It's because in large part there are researchers at the cutting edge dedicated to the pursuit and understanding of these emerging threats. By thinking just like attackers do, they dissect threats, track unfolding trends, discover critical security holes, and share proactive security measures. Our guest today is Lavi Lazarovitz. He's head of security research at CyberArk Labs, and he leads an elite group of white hat hackers, intelligence experts, and cybersecurity practitioners, many of whom served in the Israeli Defense Force, himself included. Working side by side, they examine emerging attack techniques and post-exploit methods. And Levy and team don't just find these threats, they also pop the proverbial hood on them and try to deconstruct the attack cycle and better understand how threat actors operate in efforts to defuse them or stop variants from evolving or spinning off from them. I caught up with Levi on a recent Thursday as he was heading into his weekend in Israel. It was great speaking with him outside of the constraints of our typical intercontinental video meetings. I hope you enjoy our unthreatening conversation. You're the head of security research at CyberArk Labs. And what do you do? What does the team do?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, so CyberArk Labs is actually uh, a unit built on uh, three uh, smaller units. Uh, first one is the uh, um, research unit, uh, which, as you mentioned, I, I, I lead. Uh, we are focusing on the offensive perspective. Uh, our goal is to think like attackers, uh, find emerging uh, threats, emer- emerging security gaps. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, dig into it in a moment. We have another unit, sitting close to us uh, here in uh, in, uh, the Israeli offices, the innovation team working on producing new security uh, uh, line of defenses. And some of those are protecting against the gaps that we found at the research uh, research side. So it's kind of a a combination between those two uh, red and blue forces. Last team that we have under CyberArk Labs is the uh, technology office, and they are responsible in bringing in new technologies into, uh, in, into CyberArk uh, to make sure that we are using the top-notch uh, technologies. Uh, so this is the CyberArk Labs. Uh, just a, a few words about the uh, research unit. As I mentioned, research unit is focused on the offensive perspective. Our mission statement is to know the offensive perspective the best way we can um uh, and our uh, holy grail is to, is to find emerging emerging threats uh, or vulnerabilities attack vectors that will be used uh in in the near future by threat actors so this is uh you know a mission statement a few words about cyber collapse
0: so so how hard is it to accomplish that mission statement thinking like an attacker i can't imagine attackers all think one particular way how
1: do you how do you cover that spectrum so there are se- several challenges here uh First challenge is the, as you mentioned, the spectrum of technologies that exists out there. There's so many new technologies and the attack surface and new attack surfaces, um, and it's really difficult to, uh, you know, to prioritize. And I know that organizations and uh, uh, blue teams uh, have this very same challenge. You know, there's so many technologies we need to adapt and so many attack surfaces we we need to get to know. Another challenge. Any technology that we are looking into, and I can show with you that we, at the moment, for example, we are looking in, into a decentralized identity, for example, and a, um, a blockchain and ledger-based identity infrastructure. When looking at this technology, the, the attack surface is just huge. You know, look, Looking at it, there are so many places attack threat actors would try to um, penetrate. Uh, there is the uh, ledger itself. There is the uh, uh, wallet on, on mobile phones. so there's also a mobile perspective here, uh, protocols, so much stuff. And our challenge here is to prioritize and find you know the lowest point. And this is how threat actors operate as well, uh, trying to, to make their life as easy as possible. So our second challenge is prioritizing and finding where, where is this easiest way in. You ask how, uh, how we manage it. So first of all, um, talented, talented people. I guess it's always mm-hmm. it's always the answer. Uh, we are blessed to have uh, super talented researchers that uh, live the offensive side. They have uh, experience. They came from intelligence corps. They, they came from other uh, places where they had done offensive work and now coming into cyber labs to do uh, uh, blue hat stuff or white hat stuff, mm-hmm. uh, working for 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 the for the good guys, they know, you know, they have this mindset, and and and, and this is one, one, um, uh, one way we handle it. And second mitigation that we have, or way that we handle, is just the community, the security community uh, in Israel and and globally. We are communicating with other security research groups. We are learning from each other. Uh, I, I guess you see it, uh, you know, in. Uh, in Twitter and Reddit, a lot, a lot of discussions uh, for, from uh, security experts. So this is another way we learn from other teams.
0: So when it comes to the community, there isn't a lot of holding your cards, uh, as it were. You know, there, there is a lot of, of sharing knowledge and best practices and and things like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I, absolutely. I can share with you that uh, you know, on on uh, uh, you know, from my my perspective, I'm in touch with. Uh, many security researchers in Israel and globally. And, and we talk a lot about uh, about the research we do, the insights, things that happen, you know, when you hear those breaches in, in the news. We also talk about our projects that fail from time to time, you know, research, doing research and looking for vulnerabilities is is, is super daunting and sometimes frustrating because you're digging in in looking in the code, sometimes it could be thousands of lines of code, and in many cases, uh, you you end up with nothing. So we also share our our frustrations and uh, our experiences. So uh, yeah, definitely we are. I think the whole community is is pretty open um, for uh, for discussion, and we we leverage it as well.
0: So on any given day, or any given week, month, whatever it may be. I'm presuming you have a plan for, for where your research may take you or where you want to go. But obviously, crisis situations happen fairly frequently. How do you prepare for a crisis situation? And then how does everything that seems front and center the moment before the crisis happens, how do you balance continuing to to do your, your work while attending the crisis situations?
1: So I think that uh, planning planning is key, and you know pl- planning uh, for such scenarios where you need to respond quickly, you need to uh, analyze the malware, run somewhere, you need to uh, you need to get to know the techniques used or the tools used in an attack to to give some insights is 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 crucial. It's critical. this is this is cardinal to allow to allow our team respond in time and maybe i'm stating the the obvious here but um we have a specific plan and, and you know the 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 people that know that once something happens and we flag it we know what we need to do
0: so taking a step back for a second you've been with CyberArk for almost 8 years how did you get into the cybersecurity business
1: uh, I, I love that question i actually uh, had the uh, a few chances during uh, last week to, to to share my story, uh, b- because of Cyber Week uh, here in Israel. So I actually served for the Israeli Air Force for um, for for twelve years, and I'll share with you the as uh, the story. As an intelligence officer, when when planning for um, a mission, one of the things that you have to do is map obstacles and of course threats for the aircrafts that uh, will be traveling or will be flying really, really low, close to the ground to, av- to avoid radar detection. Um, so what I saw
0: that know? in Top Gun.
1: Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you see, yeah, you, you see it uh, yeah, very quickly. It's really, really, um, it's fun, but it's super scary uh, because it's <laughs> a gosh. matter of milliseconds uh, uh, to fly in, in, into the ground. So anyways, what we do as part of the preparation is, for example, t- take a, a satellite image and then analyze the strip where the route uh, is planned. And this is where you map threats and and, and, uh, and obstacles. But for routes that 3,000, 4,000 kilometers in length, you can imagine how huge this uh, analysis task is. And one day we got from our um, um, intelligence partners um, the documentation and map with all the obstacles right in in front of us. Uh, and it saved us so much time. It was so much easier. And the source of this, well, I'm not really, uh, I don't really know what the source of this was. Of my assumptions was that it was uh, uh, they were the work of cyber warriors, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Those guys that, that put that put this uh, information uh, took it from somewhere and put it on our desk. A few years later, when I completed my my, my service Israeli, at the Israeli Air Force, I was really curious how this whole thing worked. And uh, back in 2012, 2013, I think it was, um, there were two super interesting and critical vulnerabilities. It was uh, there was uh, one heartbleed uh, SSL protocol and the other one, uh, uh shell shock and, uh, those even more, you know, triggered m- my curiosity and this is where I knew I want to find these. I want to work with people that know how to do that. Uh, and, step-by-step uh, step, I learned, uh, along the way, you know, working with the best researchers in Israel is a, is a good place, you know, to meet, uh, to meet brilliant researchers. But I can admit, David, that um, you know, like other uh, researchers, I don't have you know this story where I was an eight year old and <sighs> I find my way find my way in into some or cracked some uh, a PC game or something like that. I
0: know most most folks listening to to this podcast probably know what responsible disclosure of software vulnerabilities is, but if you could quickly um, explain what what responsible disclosure is. And yeah, then we'll absolutely. we'll get a little deeper into it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so responsible disclosure uh, is a process where an entity, a researcher, for example, that finds finds a vulnerability, uh, which is also requires a definition here. I'll touch on it. In, in, <laughs> uh, finds a vulnerability, disclose it in a responsible manner, not exposing details uh, publicly. Uh, or more specifically, to threat actors before the software vendor had the chance to produce a fix, a patch for it, and before customers, you know, using the vulnerable software, had the chance to deploy the patch and protect themselves against it. So this whole process, responsible disclosure process, is aimed to allow both software vendors and customers, and 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 uh, everyone using the software, enough time. To protect themselves before the vulnerability becomes uh, becomes public, and we need this responsible disclosure because on the other side, what uh, used to happen is that vulnerabilities were deemed down or pushed aside. You know, uh, you uh, twenty years ago, when a researcher found a vulnerability in an application, the vulnerable software vendor could have sued the researcher that that found it. Um, which we which we don't want it. We, we don't. We, mm-hmm. we really do. They, we really do want the white hat researchers sharing and improving uh, overall security. Or in other cases, just asked him or the researcher uh, not, you know, to talk about it. You know, just to silence it down. Uh, and in this case, as you uh, probably imagine, uh, uh, the, the vulnerability might still exist, and, and the customers were, might, might not be aware. As I started saying, this whole responsible disclosure process is something that developed with time. and And MITRE, um, the non-profit organization, def, you know, uh, defined what a vulnerability is, and had this all CVEs organize those those vulnerabilities, assigned a number, so it would be easier to communicate over. Uh, so this is the responsible disclosure process definition. The vulnerability part, as I, as I touched before also has few few, def- few uh, definitions, and it's a pretty broad definition.
0: Do you think it's a good time for the industry to agree on a
1: shared definition? And is that is it possible? So th- there is a shared definition of, of a vulnerability. One of the things that uh, um, we are missing as a community is a clear line between a vulnerability that impacts the software itself the confidentiality integrity and availability of the of the vulnerable uh, software itself and the functionality it provides I'll explain security vendors have tools and products that's, that secure the secures a system a let, let's say agent x this is this is the this is the product if it is vulnerable and could allow an attacker, a threat actor, to escalate privileges or even run arbitrary code on some on some system, it is vulnerable. I, I think that everyone agrees on that. Uh, on the other hand, if it provides some sort of a functionality, uh, for example, to detect certain malware or prevent execution of certain, certain, certain applications, and the threat actors successfully bypass this type of functionality, so it's not a, it's not for it's not that agent X is vulnerable, it just can be bypassed. It's not always defined as a vulnerability, and this is the gap that I see now when we uh, disclose vulnerabilities to the software vendor. When it comes to the functionality side, in some cases the priority gets lower. In some cases, it's not considered a vulnerability. It's not a security boundary gap, and this is where I think that the community sh- um, we, we as the community, should pay attention to this point, because uh, you know now more than ever, uh, there, are, there are lots of technologies. Perimeters are not clear. Uh, there's not only on-premise stuff. There's data and and application everywhere, and we really need to differentiate between those uh, type of vulnerabilities and prioritize uh, with the right uh, parameters and circumstances both. Um, so th- this, is, this is one insight that uh, I had uh, working with many security vendors recently.
0: We've got so much more to talk about, but I know that uh, that you've got your weekend coming up on you uh, very, very hard and fast here, and you've got some place to be very soon, and we don't want to uh, create a vulnerability there. Mm-hmm. I, I was hoping we could ask you one last thing to 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 wrap up. I realized while we were talking that um, more often than not, when I see you on, on video calls, you've got uh a a bat cave backdrop you're sort of a man of mystery to a certain degree (laughs) at least around here was wondering if there's something you know interesting about yourself that might surprise people i I know that might seem a little bit like an (laughs) interview question but you know presumably you haven't interviewed in eight years so let's give it a shot
1: all right all right might surprise people uh (laughs) okay i have i have an easy one uh, you, you can't really see me right now, or at least you know the the lower part. But but I'm pretty tall. I'm uh, um, 192, uh, so it's I think it's about six feet. Okay. When I tell people that I play soccer and not basketball, they're usually surprised. <laughs> this, 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 uh, I, I don't know if it, it counts as something surprising. I play soccer. I don't play. Uh, I, don't, I don't play basketball. I use my height, you know, to. Uh, um, to get to go for the high balls, but uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to do.
0: It. What what position uh, do you play?
1: Uh, usually, I play either uh, you know a, a defense or a back midfield. Uh, you know, protect protecting the uh, the crown jewels and uh, <laughs> uh, pre- pre- preparing preparing for attack.
0: Definitely looking forward to having you back on again so we can talk more things soccer and and everything else. We've really only scratched the surface here, but really appreciate you coming on uh, the podcast. Thanks so much, Levi.
1: Thank you, David. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissuesatcyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts.